All right. Uh, you all know that on uh, September 10th, 2001, uh, this is what the Twin Towers looked like. They stood tall and proud uh, in lower Manhattan. And on September 11th, as you know, our enemies destroyed those buildings and there was nothing left but devastation. And this is what it looked like. And I show this to you on purpose uh, because I want to stir your emotions. I want you to remember how you felt that day, uh, violated and angry and, and grieving uh, for the lost people uh, who perished and disbelief at the destruction that our enemies could do this to us. And we promised never to forget. And the reason I, I mention this is to get us in the right frame of mind uh, because the exiles were coming back to their own land, which had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And what they came back and found uh, would look a lot like, uh, at least according to scale, would look a lot like what we see when we look at the destruction of, uh, as 9-11. Uh, uh, so I want us to, to have that frame of mind. Now, last week we talked about God's sovereignty uh, in causing Cyrus to decree uh, that these Israelites could come back uh, to the land. And we also talked about God's sovereignty in deciding, choosing who was going to go, and then for those who would remain, that they would be generous uh, to the people who were returning uh, for the cause of rebuilding the temple. And we finished by mentioning the various different family groups and people groups uh, who came back to the land. They made the long and difficult journey back to that land. And so I want us to imagine what they found when they returned. Uh, here's what 2 Chronicles chapter 36 says about the, the final destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, this is Nebuchadnezzar uh, and the Babylonians. Then they burned down the house of God, and they broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and they burned all of its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed the valuable articles. So this is a model of what Solomon's temple would have looked like before Nebuchadnezzar uh, did his destruction. We don't know what it looked like after, but based on those verses that I just read from uh, Chronicles 36, and you know, just thinking about what it means to knock down the walls, to burn down the temple, uh, we have some kind of idea. So when they returned, they probably felt a little like we do looking at a picture of uh, the World Trade Center after 9-11. So just keep that in mind. Uh, before we begin, I just want to, to mention a couple of things uh, that the Jews learned while in exile. And the first thing that they learned, certainly, is that there are consequences to sin. Obviously, right? They knew that they had lived the last 70 years uh, in Babylon because of their sin. It was their sin that put them there. Uh, they worshipped idols. They wouldn't listen to the prophets that God sent repeatedly to warn them that they needed to turn from their idolatry and turn back to God. And so God used Nebuchadnezzar to punish Judah. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes, and, and this is the third time he's come, and these Jews would not uh, obey. They, they, they wouldn't uh, turn, at least be obedient to him in the way that they wanted it, he wanted them to, nor were they obedient to God. And so finally Nebuchadnezzar just burnt the whole thing down. And so most of those, though, who returned to the land, they had never seen Jerusalem, right? These were the next generation and the generation beyond that even of people who came back. They were born in Babylon. They lived in Babylon. And it must have grieved their hearts to, to come back and, and see the ruin of this temple, you know, for the first time to realize the significance of what this sin had cost. 
And then imagine it's even worse for the people who had seen Solomon's temple to, to come back and see what this looked like, what Nebuchadnezzar and his armies had done to it. It brought them face to face with the reality and the consequences of their sin and what their sin wrought, the destruction of the temple as it were. And even more than the physical damage to the temple is the fact that uh, Ezekiel chapter 10 and chapter 11 uh, talk about how uh, before God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the temple, to destroy the city, it says that God's glory departed from Israel. So not only do they have the physical destruction, but they have the spiritual reality that God had left them and allowed Nebuchadnezzar to do this to them. So those were the consequences of sin. And the second thing they learned is that God disciplines those that he loves like a son. God disciplined uh, these Jews, and, and the discipline had its desired effect. Uh, God disciplines us so we will return to him, and that's what God was doing to the Israelites. Uh, the people of Judah, they stopped worshiping idols after this. There's no longer a problem with idolatry in Israel after this time period in the second temple period. Uh, they rededicated themselves to the Lord, and God then uh, allowed them to return to the land according to his sovereignty and his time provision, the 70 years that he had written uh, in the prophets before. So they return, and imagine their uh, emotions as they look at the ruins. Uh, I'm sure they despaired, just like we despaired when we looked at the ruins of 9-11 on that day. But they were also determined, just like we said, we are going to rebuild something on that site. Uh, they were determined that way as well. Their, their temple was gone, but they knew they had a divine commission now to return to the land. And not only did they have a divine commission, they had a royal commission because Cyrus had given them permission and he had even resourced them to rebuild on that old site. So they intended to build on the original site where the temple was. And so to do so, you can imagine that there was going to be a ton of cleanup that was going to have to be done before they could build again. So it was a monumental task that they had ahead of them. But first things first. They didn't need to construct the entire temple again uh, to begin worshiping the Lord and offering sacrifices to the Lord. All they needed was an altar. And so they got down to business uh, building the altar first. So we see that in verses 1 through 5. Now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one person to Jerusalem. And then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers rose up and built the altar of, God, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, because they were terrified of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they also celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the prescribed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance, as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering, also for the new moons, and for all the appointed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated, and from everyone who offered a voluntary offering to the Lord. All right, so it says, they returned in the seventh month. The seventh month was a very important month on Israel's calendar. Uh, this was the Hebrew month Tishri, uh, which corresponds to September-October on our Gregorian calendars. And God uh, prescribed three uh, festivals to happen in the month of Tishri. The first one was on day one, they would have the Feast of Trumpets. 
the Feast of Trumpets marked the end of one agricultural year and the beginning of a new agricultural year. And so God said to Moses in Leviticus chapter 23, he said, Say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present an offering made to the Lord by fire. So the first thing they do, they observe the Feast of Trumpets in the seventh month. The next date they would observe is on day 10 of the month. That's the Day of Atonement, where they would offer sacrifices to atone for their sins. Uh, now, Ezra doesn't mention it here in this particular chapter, which is unusual. Uh, we would expect, and probably they did, celebrate the Day of Atonement, since they did celebrate the uh, Feast of Trumpets. Uh, but that was supposed to happen on the 10th day of this month of Tishri. And then the last festival mentioned is the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Ingathering. It's known as any one of those three. Uh, they would not work. They would live in booths or tents to remember their exodus from Egypt and the long journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Now, some scholars think that the Jews timed their return so that they would be there just in time uh, to get there for the seventh month so that they could show the Lord how rededicated they were to him by uh, celebrating these feasts at this appointed time. Uh, and so what we learn is that the Jews seem to have learned their lessons while in Israel they, or while in exile. They had put away uh, their idols. They had rededicated themselves to the Lord. We saw that they intended to purify themselves. We saw that last time when they were excluding people who could not prove their heritage. And so uh, they were also paying special attention to observing the word of God according to the letter of the law as written in the book of Moses. So rebuilding the temple would take time. In fact, it would take years. But what they could do is they could build an altar. And once they built that altar, they could worship God properly. And so the text says that they regathered as one person to Jerusalem. That's a really important uh, phrase there, that they gathered together as one person. This shows their single-minded intent to, to work together, to love the Lord, to do it his way, to build this altar again. And so uh, also to observe these festivals of this month of Tishri. Now we talked last time about the requirements of, of what is needed for a nation to experience rebirth and revival. And some of the things that we mentioned were a love for God, a love for God's word, a wanting to do things God's way, a worshiping God the way he demands with wholehearted devotion and unity among the people. And we see these Israelites demonstrating these qualities and characteristics, uh, these people who had returned. And I think that's what's missing in our country now, right? We don't have that sense of unity. We don't have that sense of dedication to the Lord anymore, not by a long shot. And so we wonder as we look around, is our country irretrievably lost? Uh, you know, Satan seems to cast a huge shadow over our country right now. And, and we can learn from these exiles. These, these exiles learned in Babylon. They come back to the land and they turn back to the Lord. Uh, they recognize that God sovereignly ordained their return. Uh, and when they arrived, they worshiped God's way. And that's where our country is failing, isn't it? We're, we're not worshiping God. We're not worshiping God his way. We, we've taken him out of the public square. We're, everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And that's where we're lacking. Our country, to receive God's blessing, needs a 180-degree turn uh, off the course we're on and back to God if we want to experience his blessing. 
We need to repent. We need to seek him. We need to worship him. We need to live his way. And this is a mandate for us, for us, the people of God. You know, last week, Larry Moyer taught us the principles of evangelism. And it's such a timely message uh, in this world that we're living in, in this country that we're living in. The, the only chance that we have to return to God, to, to start living God's way, for our country to experience revival is for us, the people of God, to, to show the people who are not presently of God uh, that they are lost and that they need a Savior, Jesus Christ, so that they will join in God's program. And this is what we need in our country. That's how revival begins. We face a monumental task in this country. And that's true. But, you know, the, the Israelites, they surely, when they got back to the land, they knew that they faced a monumental task too. And if it's God's will, uh, he can do revival, right? We, we trust that God can do revival. He did it for Israel. He can do it for us. Uh, but they started by gathering together as one person in Jerusalem. And that, plus building the altar observing the feasts, observing the daily rituals, sacrificing burnt offerings. These are all strong evidence uh, that they had learned the lesson uh, of their exile and they had learned the lessons from God's discipline. So if God is disciplining, disciplining us, you and me, right now, uh, our country for our national sin, well, here's a lesson from the Jewish exiles from 2,500 years ago. Repent, return to the Lord, Worship him only. Stop worshiping the idols of our day, money, materialism, uh, all of these things, and respond properly to God. Well, the Israelites started by rebuilding the altar. Now, building altars was very significant in the Old Testament. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Gideon all built altars to the Lord. Uh, Elijah repaired the altar before his confrontation with the priests of Baal. An altar usually represented a person's desire to consecrate himself to the Lord, to return to the Lord's ways, and to commemorate some great thing that the Lord had done uh, in their lives. And so Solomon's uh, altar was made of pure gold. They, they didn't have those kinds of resources, but they could still build an altar. And so that's what they did. Now, for us, you and I, we don't sacrifice on altars anymore, right? The, 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 the age of the altar is gone. We don't have an altar on our church platform here anymore because we don't sacrifice anymore because Jesus was the final sacrifice for our sin. We no longer need an altar anymore. Uh, the place where we worship God is in our hearts, right? We worship God in our hearts. And this is the place where we decide to be obedient to him, where we decide to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to him on a daily basis. So we don't need a physical altar anymore. But the Jews didn't have uh, Jesus, nor did they have the Holy Spirit yet. So they did it God's way in that time. They only had the law, so they built according to the law's requirements. And we see that this was an organized construction project. Uh, Jeshua, the high priest, and his brothers, and, and his, the other high priests, they were the religious leaders. And then Zerubbabel and his brothers, uh, they built the altar again, just as Moses described. Now, this is uh, the plan of the tabernacle. We see that uh, the altar was going to be just to the west over here. I, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the temple would be to the west, and then the altar is just a little bit over here to the east. That's where they were going to build, uh, rebuild the altar, uh, just where it was. It says they built it on its foundation. Uh, so they were putting the altar back just in the same location that it was, just where, the alt where Moses said the altar ought to be. And the text says that they were terrified 
of the peoples of the land. So they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now, they've been in exile in Babylon for more than 50 years. So this is the first time in 50 years that they got to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. And a burnt offering was uh, when the Israelites would bring a male bull, sheep, or goat without defect uh, to the priest who would butcher that animal, uh, drain the animal's blood, sprinkle it on the altar, uh, skin it, cut it in pieces, they wash the, the intestines, they, they offer the thing up on an altar, and they, it burns all night long. Uh, a person could, could offer a burnt offering uh, any time, and the purpose of it is to atone for their sin, to acknowledge their sin, and acknowledge the great God that they, that they serve, and to renew their relationship with him. So that was the purpose of these burnt offerings. Now, the animal died on behalf of the sinner, right, who offered up that animal to atone for their personal sin. Not permanently, of course, right? That didn't happen until Jesus Christ came. Uh, Jesus Christ, Larry Moyer told us what we all know, right? Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, right? That's the gospel. gospel Bible is 66 books, gospel is 10 words. Bible is 66 books, gospel is 10 words. Jesus Christ died for our sin and rose from the dead. Say it with me. Jesus Christ died for our sin and rose from the dead, right? So this is what we learned last week, and uh, repetition is good, and we learned that from Larry. Uh, so, uh, yeah, th that's the gospel. So they don't have the gospel yet. They have to do it God's way according to the sacrificial system. Uh, we have Jesus Christ, and so we don't have to do it that way anymore. But they did everything just as the law of Moses described it. Uh, and, of course, the book of Exodus talks about having a perpetual offering, a morning and evening, a burnt offering that would never go out. It's, it's offered all the time. And so verse 3 shows that they're offering these sacrifices just as God demanded. And so they did it out of reverence for God. They did it God's way to continue their relationship with him. And so that God would protect them from their enemies. We don't want to miss that part of it, right? They, they realize uh, that, that they knew God wanted them back in the land. But as we're going to see throughout the course of these books, their enemies didn't. Their enemies did not want them back in the land. And, and the people who were there when they returned to the land, these people were not so happy that they were back. And, and they were going to face opposition. Uh, so with no army, with no means of defense, they had to count on the Lord for his protection. And don't we find ourselves there sometimes, you and I? Don't we find ourselves there sometimes where at the end of our own capability, at the end of our rope, we're completely hopeless in our own power, and that's the time when we turn to God. Uh, and when we turn to God, we, we or he graciously shows us that he's been there all along. That's the time when he shows up. He always shows up. Uh, and so these returnees would learn that, that God is, is going to be there for them. When, when they need his protection, when they need his provision over the course of Ezra and Nehemiah, he shows up to protect them. Verse 4 says that they observed the Feast of Tabernacles just as it is written, and they offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance. Now, the ordinance is a big deal. Numbers uh, chapter, uh, what is it, chapter 29, verses 12 to 38, describes this ordinance of, the, of the, the offerings that they had to give, their sequence, their exact prescription, what they had to do. That's 27 verses of rules and regulations for how they were to offer these burnt offerings. And the, these returning Jews followed each and every one of them to the letter, which shows that they were trying to do it God's way, that God had changed their hearts. So God continued to bless them as they sought the Lord, as they sought to do things his way. 
And so now, with the altar built and sacrifices being offered, uh, they could start uh, to think about rebuilding the temple itself, but the first thing they had to do was to get the materials there, and that takes a little bit of time. So they prepared to build the temple in verses 6 to 7. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple had not been laid. And they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the, to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So as we read this, we just can't help but miss the, uh, we, we can't miss the parallels uh, between what happened here and Solomon's original construction of the first temple. Uh, Solomon made alliances with the, the, the people of Phoenicia and Tyre to ship the logs of uh, cedar down to Joppa, and that is where uh, they would retrieve them. And, and in exchange, Solomon would give them uh, wheat, flour, wine, and oil. And Solomon also asked for the best craftsmen, the, the best masons to come along who could help with construction of the temple. And so we see the same pattern happening here, this time being resourced by Cyrus. And we said uh, last week that, that the people who returned were not the wealthiest people, right? Those people, the well-to-do, probably stayed in Babylon where their lives were comfortable. Uh, these were the less well-to-do who were returning. But financed by Cyrus, they had the resources to go and get the best materials. So they didn't skimp on costs. They went and got the best stuff that they could get uh, from Lebanon. They asked for the best craftsmen they could get. Uh, uh, and they also showed that they were faithful with the resources that God had given them. Uh, they were trying to do things God's way, not compromising on materials, not compromising on craftsmanship, workmanship uh, in the rebuilding of the temple. So again, they're showing their dedication to the Lord. So they prepared to build the temple. They got all the materials now uh, to Jerusalem. And so they began to build the temple, verses 8 and 9. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of the brothers, the priests, and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites, who were 20 years old and upward, to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah and the sons of Henadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. All right, so we can see that they were organized, right? It took them several months to get the wood from Lebanon down to uh, the place where they were going to build in Jerusalem. Uh, in the second month of the second year now, so now we're in the second year of the return, that's when they began to build the temple. Now, the second month is the month that follows Passover. So they probably had observed Passover in the first month, and now the second month is the beginning of the dry season in Israel, and that's a great time to build, right? You don't want to build in a monsoon. You want to build during the dry season, and so that's what they're doing. Uh, so the, the, these verses are stressing the unity, the cooperation. They're still gathered together as one person uh, building this uh, temple together. And so Zerubbabel and Jeshua were the main leaders of this, but we see here that they were able to delegate power and authority, uh, funneling down to the Levites and others who could do the work uh, in an orderly and efficient manner. So temple construction begins. And we see in verses 10 and 11 that they worshipped while they worked. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. 
And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his favor is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout of joy when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now, Ezra doesn't say anything about the process of, of laying down this foundation. He doesn't tell us anything about what the foundation looks like, but he's very careful to tell us about how these, this small community of returning exiles' worship uh, was uh, joyful and, and, and fulfilling uh, and in accordance with how the Lord wanted to be worshipped. So uh, these returning Israelites had accomplished a lot, right? They had survived Babylon. They had survived the long trip back. Uh, they had built the altar. They'd acquired building materials, and they'd laid the temple's foundation. So that's a lot for them to rejoice about. And what's interesting is that they, they worshipped in the same way that David prescribed in 1 Chronicles 16 when they brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem uh, all the way 1,000 or 500 years ago from them. The priests dressed in the appointed garb, and they had their trumpets. The Levites had their cymbals. They sang from Psalm 136, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness lasts forever. So they were acknowledging God's hesed love. His hesed love means his, his covenantal love for his people. Uh, it's translated variously throughout the Bible as loving kindness or love. Uh, we don't have a, a great English word that, that encapsulates all that hesed means. Uh, but they remembered that all that God had done for them, and they were remembering that God was remembering his covenantal love for them. Uh, and so they were rejoicing. And, and the foundation of the temple promised hope, like a deposit that the building would finally or ultimately be completed. And so they shouted with great joy. But for some, it was a time of sadness. So let's read verses 12 and 13. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. While many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people, because the people were shouting with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. So these returning exiles were kind of a mixed bag of older people and younger people, priests, non-priests, Levites, non-Levites. Uh, some of the older men were, were, were Levites who had seen uh, the temple in its former state, uh, Solomon's temple. So the Bible doesn't tell us, not here or anywhere else, anything about this second temple, the, the dimensions of it or, or what it looked like. Uh, so we can only surmise that the old, older men who had seen Solomon's temple were sad because in some way it was inferior uh, to Solomon's temple. And you can imagine that it was also a reminder to them uh, of, of the consequences of sin, that, that uh, we had this, but now because of sin we have something a whole lot less than this. Uh, when I look at the Freedom Tower today, I mean, it's a beautiful building, right? But, but all I see when I look at it is a reminder of what used to be there, not, not what is presently there. And so that makes me, somebody who saw it you know, regularly, uh, very sad uh, for what's there. Uh, but the younger people hadn't seen Solomon's Temple. What they had was a pretty good start, and so they rejoiced because of what they had accomplished with God's help. And what we learn is that the, the sounds, uh, the, these mixed sounds, were heard for miles around. Uh, people could see and hear uh, from far away this mixed sound of crying and rejoicing. Uh, but the Jews recommitted themselves, and they returned to the land. 
Uh, next week, we're going to see that, that all, of their, all of the people who they returned to were not necessarily happy that they were there. The people of God will always have enemies. But in the time left, I want us to think about how uh, the observance of these rituals that, that these Jews followed points to Jesus. These rituals of the law all point to Jesus. Everything the Jews did was to obey the law of Moses because that was all they had. So I just want to take a little bit of time to praise the Lord that we don't have to worship the way they worshiped because we have the Lord Jesus Christ now. We don't have to worship through the sacrificial system. The altar, the sacrifices, the Feast of Tabernacles or booths as it's called, these things all point to Christ. Now, just to look at a couple of verses from the New Testament that show us this, uh, the author of Hebrews in verse 13, 10 says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. The author of Hebrews uh, was writing to the Jews of the New Testament era, telling them not to revert to their uh, old ways of worship in Judaism. It may have been that they were being threatened, intimidated by uh, people who were, were trying to cause them to return. Uh, the, the author is telling them, don't do that. We serve, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle, that's the old Jewish way, they have no right to eat. Well, the altar is Jesus. That is what the author is saying. The tabernacle is the place of worship prior to Jesus, but the altar is now representative of Jesus's coming. And so Jesus himself became the altar, uh, the place of sacrifice, fulfilling the altar's purpose and fulfilling the sacrificial system by atoning for sin once and for all. And Jesus also fulfilled the purposes of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, you remember in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, uh, Jesus went up to the festival in secret. Do you remember that? Well, this was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths that he was going up to. Uh, and they celebrated that feast after the seasonal harvest. And there were two important rituals that, uh, that occurred on the last day during the Feast of Tabernacles. And the first ritual involved the pouring of water. Uh, this was to commemorate how God gave water from the rock uh, while they were traveling in the wilderness so that they wouldn't die of thirst. And so they commemorated this by uh, getting a pitcher of water. They would go down to lower Jerusalem. They'd get a pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam. They'd bring it back up to the temple, and they'd pour that water into a basin. And while they did that, the priests blew the trumpets, and the Levites and the people waved palm branches, and they sang Hosanna. And so that was the ritual. Now, when Jesus is there at this uh, Feast of Tabernacles on the last day, as he's watching this go on, he shows that the ritual points to himself uh, because while the priests were carrying out the ritual in John chapter 7, Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow streams of living water, which of course is a reference to the Holy Spirit, which we receive when we uh, receive Jesus as our Savior. So that's the first ritual. The second ritual is the lighting uh, that would happen at the temple. So tens of thousands of people would come to this Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, and they, each one of them would carry a lighted torch, which would represent the pillar of God that, that God gave them so that he would light their way uh, through the desert in the wilderness. And so the torches would light up the entire city. We see that for miles. And so now Jesus expresses the spiritual metaphor behind this ritual when he cried out in a loud voice on the last day of the feast in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 
So Jesus proclaimed at the feast that he was the reality to which their celebrations all pointed. Uh, he is the fulfillment of all their feasts. So he fulfilled the Feast of Tabernacles. And at the end of the harvest, at the end of this festival season, it was a time of rest uh, because the harvest was over. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was a time of rest for the Israelites. And Jesus offers rest to all souls who will come to him. He said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is comfortable and my burden is light. And so at the end of this Feast of Tabernacles, when they were resting, Jesus says, I am the ultimate, the final place of rest. Come to me and you will have the rest that your heart desires. And so we just praise God for that today, uh, that we don't worship the way they had to. We have Jesus Christ and him fulfilling all that these feasts pointed to is such a blessing for us because we just get to say, thank you, Jesus. I place my faith and my trust in you and I worship you and we are right with him. We are justified by God. He sees us as though he's looking at his own son, Jesus Christ. So let's finish with a couple of brief applications. The first is this. Revival begins when the church gathers together as one person. We're called to be united, right? We see that over and over throughout the Gospels and, and throughout Paul's writings. And I thought our Evangelism Sunday last Sunday was just a great success. Uh, the idea that we could uh, get Larry uh, to come in here uh, and, and teach us about principles of evangelism and that we would all be united in wanting to learn them uh, and to, to, to gather together for worship, to share a meal, to learn these principles of evangelism, uh, because we care about the lost state of the world and we want to do something about it. We want to be taught about how we can fulfill the Great Commission. And so uh, we want revival. We want uh, people to know the gospel so that they can come spend eternity with us and with Jesus in heaven. Uh, so uh, I thought that was a great uh, thing that we did last week, uh, trying to gather together as one person. And second, revival begins with worship. The Jews learned that while in exile. Uh, sometimes God needs to discipline us to get our attention. And God did that to Israel, taking them away from their home, destroying their temple, and taking them into captivity. Uh, but once they recommitted to God, they worshipped his way, the way he wanted to be worshipped, and they recommitted their hearts to him. Now, you and I may feel like we are living in exile in a strange land where we are aliens and strangers. We are not the majority anymore. We are the mi minority. Uh, but the only remedy is worship and prayer. These are the things that lead to revival. And, and we pray that God may take note and forgive his people and heal our land. Amen? Lord God, we thank you uh, for these words from uh, Ezra. And Lord, this is uh, a time in Israel's history that uh, maybe we don't know that much about. Uh, Lord, we're not all that familiar with Ezra all the time. Uh, we don't spend a lot of time in Ezra and Nehemiah, Lord. But I just pray that this sermon series will, will uh, just rekindle something in us uh, to show us that, that the people of God have, have always longed for revival, Lord. And, and in Ezra's day, they longed for it. And we long for it too, Lord. And I just pray that uh, you would continue to stir this in our hearts, Lord, and show us the things that we need to do to uh, turn this country around, Lord, to turn our hearts back to you, to turn lost people to you, Lord, and that we would love you and worship you the way you want to be loved and worshipped. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.